You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Chthonia. Um, my name is Breege Burke. I'm your host for this episode. And uh, this particular episode, we're kicking off 2020 with a look at the uh, Hindu uh, dark goddesses, okay? And uh, it's, you know, which are, which could be defined, um, there's, there's, there's many names that they go by, but some of the main groups are the uh, Matrikas, uh, the Mahavidyas, uh, the Navdurgas, and uh, there's also um, other other kinds of um, you know associated spirits that are um, you know perhaps manis- you know, the manifestations of Shakti that uh, that fall into this sort of um, dark goddess category. Now, um, what I want to be clear about up front with this particular podcast is that um, this is going to be the f- kind of an introduction to um, what I'm going to call them the tantric goddesses, because it's within Tantra that they really have their um, their fullest expression. So there's a lot here, um, because I, I feel like I mostly have a Western audience here. Um, this I don't know how widely this is listened to in India or other places, but there's a lack of a... Um, you know, there's a there's a there's not there's there's not a whole lot of understanding about how Eastern religion works. Um, you know, Eastern Eastern practice. You know, in general, I mean, you know, not even getting into tantra, but um, you know, but there's there's a number of concepts that I think is very are very important to spell out before we get into talking about the individual uh, matrikas or mahavidyas or navdurgas or any of these particular kinds of beings. Um, they is, so, so with this particular episode, I want to focus on mainly doing two things, really. One is I want to give some kind of basic definitions, um, as to, you know, what these, uh, different categories are, you know, first of all, what, what are these different things? What do they mean? What do we mean by Tantra? And when we're talking about these particular goddesses in Hinduism, what is the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, what... And we're talking about these particular goddesses, like, you know, where, where, what are the sources for this? Where does this come from? What are the stories and, and kind of the background? Without going into too much detail, I'm going to gloss over a lot of stuff for now because I'm going to get into a lot more detail uh, over the course of this um, spring and into summer. In fact, I've, I've been plotting the series out for 2020, and it looks like this is going to take at least six months to get through. So, and, uh, and also just a quick side note, forgive me today. I'm very, um, this is very dry in my office today. So I feel like I have to stop and um, take a drink. I actually had somebody complain on my YouTube channel that they don't like the click in my voice. And I say, well, too bad. Um, <laughs> because besides having scar tissue in the back of my throat um, from surgery from, gosh, more than 30 years ago now. But anyway, I, yeah, so I have um, my, I, I tend to, you know, get, I get very, very dry very, very quickly. So, um, but I also don't want to take every two seconds to stop and take a, you know, a drink of something. So um, so anyway, um, that just, if, if I have to pause, I apologize for that. Um, okay. So the first part is I want to get into definitions. I want to explain what our background is, what we're, what we're talking about, um, and give us kind of a, kind of a general overview of how Hinduism works, how Hindu prayer works, how Hindu worship works. 
um, because all of this is going to be extremely relevant when we start talking about um, these deities over the course of uh, 2020. And I also kind of want to end it with a little bit of a discussion about my own connection to these deities. Um, not because I'm looking to make this about myself, but there are questions that people will have. Here I am, a white middle class American woman, and there may be people who you know want to start calling privilege or colonialism or cultural appropriation or things like that. And um, you know, while while those things are all uh, can be valid concerns in their own way, in some way it's also um, I don't know. At least as far as I'm concerned, a lot of it's just you know horse pucky. So. Not and again, not to dismiss those things as as not being real issues, but my concern with those things has nothing to do with any of those things, and uh, so I want to give a little bit of background of why these particular um, deities uh, are so so important to me. In fact, um, we did a podcast on the Morrigan, who is also very important to me, but I find that the easiest thing for me uh, to deal with is. Um, you know, when I when I when I first discovered these particular set of deities, they somehow naturally became the most the easiest to work with. And um, as people know, I don't always have the best accent when I'm trying to read foreign languages. But um, over time, I've picked up the um, Sanskrit. Uh, you know, I'm going to call it Sanskrit because it covers a you know um, sort of a variety of uh, you know Hindu um, languages or languages of India. Um, I, I've been able to pick up um, that much, it, it, uh, surprisingly, at least I've been told by other Indian people, surprisingly, um, it, much better than they would expect from a Westerner. I'm not saying it's perfect, but um, but my pronunciation of those things uh, goes a lot better than, um, than it tends to do with um, European religions, so go figure. Okay, so all that um, is preface. So let me, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to actually kind of have almost three introductions because, you know, we're going to get into definitions here. I think in the next episode, I want to talk about the, um, the scriptures that mention um, the, uh, you know, these, these particular goddesses, particularly the Devi Mahatmayam, which includes the Durga Saptashadi, or the 700 verses in praise of Durga. And also the, um, the, which also, again, which overlaps with this is the Sri Chandipat, which is a, um, you know, which is a long um, litany. It, it basically incorporates it, a lot of things of the Devi Mahatmayam. It's it's all of the um, it's a litany of stories about uh, the great goddess and the battles of the great goddess. Okay, so that that's going to be in another one, and then I'm going to have a third introductory episode on the Sri Chakra, um, which is kind of a central focus of worship for those who practice Sri Vidya. Um, but the Sri Chakra embodies all of these. Um, you know, um, all of these, you know, these, the, the, the uh, range of complex feminine elements. And it is an extremely um, powerful mantra. And uh, the Sri Chakra is also called the Sri Yantra. You, um, it's, a, it's basically nine interlocking circles that make um, 43 triangles. Uh, sorry, nine interlocking triangles, not circles. It, ha- it does have also nine, um, you know, kind of nine levels or nine circles. These are kind of like two lotus petal levels, uh, 16 and 8, and then and then you have these interlocking triangles with a bindu in the center. Um, and this is an extremely powerful um, yantra and a very powerful uh, image. So, uh, and, and again, it's, it's, it's very central to what we're going to call shakta, or, or, or kind of worship of shakti, which is focused very much on the divine feminine. Okay, the whole point of... Um, you know this particular uh, branch of Hinduism, the Shakta, uh, Shakta is is you know in whatever form it takes, 
um, is is definitely focused on the divine feminine as the primary mover in the universe. And um, and Shakti, when we talk about Shakti, we're referring to um, there there is a, a legend of a goddess called Shakti. Okay. And, um, and, and again, depending, you know, there's, 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 um, various stories. One, um, rather, uh, traditional story is that she is the daughter of <clears throat> Dakshina, who's sort of the progenitor of the, um, you know, of the, of the human race and of, you know, and of, you know, progenitor of, of, you know, of creation. He's sort of the, the, the human, um, one of the great ancestors of the human family, if you will. And Shakti is his daughter. And she's extremely beautiful, and many men come to marry her, but the only man she's in love with is Shiva, uh, the god who, you know, he's um, got, you know, his matted hair, and he lives out in the forest, and, um, you know, uh, and Dakshina doesn't really care for him. Uh, but but Shakti, you know, she, when, when, when the day comes when she has to pick a suitor, um, she has to, um, you know, I, I forget exactly what it is, but she, has, she kind of has to... Um, I know what it is. She has a flower garland, and she has to give it to um, put it around the neck of the person who she is, um, you know, going to choose. And so she wants she she doesn't see Shiva there. She's feeling very very um, gloomy. So she sends out a prayer to him. She throws it in the air, and then all of a sudden he appears, and he's got it around his neck. So, you know, he 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 does actually um, accede to her wish, and they are married. But of course, Dakshina is not happy about the marriage. He's very angry about it, and she of course becomes isolated from her family. And then when Shiva asks her, you know, she when there's a big, um, the big great ritual sacrifice that they have, um, you know, during during the year, um, Shakti wants to go. Um, it's her family's thing, and you know, she's not really invited. You know, they don't really, but but she's because she wants to go anyway. And Shiva and Shiva, of course, is not invited, and uh, so she, but she wants, you know, and it's a it's a snub, but she wants to go anyway. And Shiva's telling her, no, I don't I don't see anything good coming out of this. Don't go to this, but she goes anyway. And of course, when not only when she is there, not only is she treated coldly by her father, but he actually insults her husband. And this, this, this is something she cannot take. And so she actually sort of changes form and she self-immolates, okay? Meaning that she sets herself on fire, basically. And uh, Shiva appears in his terrible form when he realizes what's happened. And he... Um, <clears throat> he ends up, you know, des- you know, destroying the whole sac. I mean, basically, the whole sacrifice is destroyed. It's corrupted um, because of Dakshina's insult, and then he replaces his head with an animal head. I forget which one it was, but um, and eventually Shiva is placated, but sh- but Shakti is gone. I mean, and and Shakti is also known as Sati. Okay, sometimes that uh, sh is not implied there, and. I don't know if anybody's familiar with a Indian practice that was, you know, done called Sati. And what would happen is if a woman's husband, when her woman's husband died, she would throw herself on his funeral pyre and immolate herself. And that is kind of comes from this story, although um, it is not in any way, as far as I'm concerned, and I don't know. And, and I mean, I, I, for all the bad things about British colonialism in uh, in India, they did outlaw the practice of sati. Not that they actually, I don't know that they actually were ever to stamp, you know, totally stamp it out. And I, I don't think it's prevalent now, but I do think... Um, Probably there are some areas where they still practice that. Um, and my, my issue with that is the idea is that it's, it's taking the, the Shakti story and saying that basically a woman has no value without her husband. So she might as well throw herself on the funeral pyre because, you know, they, they have to go in a pair. Um, and again, you know, whether, you know, whether or not those who talk about this practice would justify it that way or not, that is definitely how I see it. I don't, I don't see 
Um, it's like people who read um, Western scriptures in a very, very literal fashion. It's kind of like it doesn't, you know, in no way does this imply something that you should be doing in your day-to-day life. Um, however, now when Shakti supposedly um, burns herself up, she falls to pee, her body falls to pieces. And the various parts of her body land in different parts of the world. And supposedly one of her toes, and the toe actually, by the way, is a, you know, um, very, uh, you know, there's a lot of tantric symbolism surrounding the toe and, and it's, um, you know, uh, you know, what, what, it, what it actually means for sexuality and so forth, uh, supposedly lands in a um, place that is now known as Kaligat. And the, this toe is supposedly preserved and wrapped and it's kept in a kind of an inner temple. And supposedly once a year, the toe of Shakti is brought out and um unwrap but the thing is the 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 um the priests who bring it out they're not even allowed to look at it they have to be blindfolded when they un- unwrap it uh that's how powerful it's considered to be now if you think the idea of a holy toe falling from the sky sounds weird don't forget that in uh, greek religion um Troy ends up being, the, the, the city of Troy in Homer's Iliad ends up being taken, um, well, it's not actually in the Iliad, but it's, it's post-Iliad, um, the, that the, um, Troy is actually able to be taken because there is a, a statue of Athena that supposedly falls from the sky uh, into Troy, and as long as Troy has it in their walls, then they are invincible. Well, of course, um, Odysseus contrives to to steal uh, with Diomedes. They 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 contrive to steal this um, palladium, and so therefore after that, uh, you know that that's where the wooden horse kind of comes in to be a um, what you call it like a, a you know a reparation for stealing it. And it's um, so so that's supposedly a statue that falls from the sky. And Rome also um, supposedly there's an aegis that falls from the sky, which is like basically a shield. Uh, that that it's taken as a sign that Rome is the great, you know, power, now is now the great power of the world, that Jupiter has thrown this Aegis down from the sky, and now, uh, now you know, of course, that was also kept in a sacred place. So this idea of the gods throwing sacred, you know, sacred things falling from the sky is not, um, not necessarily alien to uh, ancient Western belief either. Okay. Um, and of course, you can also point to the manna from heaven, if you, but that's a little bit of a different thing. Okay. So... That's the story of Shakti. Now, Shakti is generally a term that is used for the vital life force. Um, people who practice Kundalini Yoga, um, the, the force that supposedly moves up through the spinal column is known as the Shakti force, okay? It, it is your consciousness, it is your vitality, and the, the, the sort of progenitors of the um, of everything is known as Adi Para Shakti, okay? The, the, the supreme sort of primal vitality, Okay, whatever else you want to call that. And of course, Adi Parashakti doesn't necessarily have um, uh, a form per se, but, but will take on a number of these different forms. And these forms of Shakti are what we actually see uh, in these myths and in these stories. Okay, so the, the Shakti concept is very important. Also worth noting that Shakti is eventually reincarnated in Hindu myth as Parvati, who um, later becomes the spouse of Shiva. And of course, because is brooding after Shakti dies, he, he goes away, he's meditating in the forest, he doesn't want anything to do with anyone. Um, but And the thing is, the, the um, sages know that he needs to, you know, mate with Parvati. So, you know, Kama, the god of desire, tries to fix it up, but that doesn't work, because then Shiva opens his third eye and burns up Kama when he tries to shoot his arrows of love. Very similar to Eros in the Greek or Cupid, um, and that doesn't, you know, and so Shiva just get that just makes him angry. Um, but he eventually Parvati does win him over by practicing austerities. 
and meditating in the forest and giving everything up and and eventually she wins him over and he uh, and he marries her so um so parvati is also another expression of um this uh shakti okay so um let me go into okay so let me let me start getting into um what the central story is of these particular um uh, the, these these feminine forces. The, as I mentioned, th- those are all kind of the backstories of you know, the marriage of Shiva and Shakti. And actually, the Parvati-Shiva story um, has a lot to do with the origin of the Mahavidyas, but I will talk about that um, in a second. Um, now, I want to mention the Devi Mahatmayam, okay, or, you know, and, or the Durga Saptashadi, uh, 700 verses in praise of Durga, um, and also something known as Sri Chandipat. Uh, meaning Chandi, C-H, well, transliterated, C-H-A-N-D-I, or Chandika, um, and Pat is P-A-T-H, um, that's, you know, that's basically, you know, the, you know, it, it's kind of a, um, it tells the main stories of, um, of uh, Chandi literally means angry, okay, so this is a manifestation of the goddess that is angry, um, and in her more ferocious kind of a form, okay, um, now the Devi Mahatmayam basically, uh, it, it talks about two different battles. It's a sage relating the story, uh, you know, talking to, to, um, you know, people who, you know, sort of, t- there's a teacher and there's, I think there's a lawyer, there's somebody else. They're, they're basically, they've renounced the world and they're, they're talking with these, um, the sage and the sage is relating the stories. Um, so you have, uh, there, there's basically the battle between the Mahisasura and the divine mother, the Devi, okay? Um, and the, the Mahisasura literally means great demon. And um, in some translations, um, the great demon is connected with uh, having too much ego or having letting the mind have too much control of things, okay? But also it can be the kind of pride and lust for power and, and you know, kind of narcissistic tendencies, like in their extreme, okay? That's the Mahisasura. And the Mahisasura often appears in the, like at least in the one, um, he appears as a buffalo, as a great, even though he's, he's supposed to be this, this great king, you know, he's taken over the three worlds, as they say, and um, the gods are forgotten. And he has two great, he has two generals, uh, two main generals. I mean, there are other, he has other armies, he has the armies of passion and anger, for example. But um, these, these two main armies are those of Shumba and Nishumba. Okay, and that is the ar- armies of too much and too little. Too much being Shumba, too little being Nishumba. So it's one, you know, you, you know, there's the there's the excessive, not only excessive, you know, gluttony and pride and all, all of these other things, but Nishumba is the person who's just the victim and very self-effacing and isn't enough, you know. So it's 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 kind of you know that that imbalance, it, you know, uh, too much and too little represent the extremes, the imbalanced extremes, and the great mother does battle with them. And the various manifestations, and at least some of the uh, the demons or the ashuras, as they're called, um, gods are referred to as devis or de- devas, and is masculine. Devi is feminine, um, and then the ashuras are the um, male demons. Uh, Zoroastrianism, by the way, just a side tidbit: um, there are also devas and ashuras, and their functions are reversed. The ashuras are the good guys, and the devas are the bad guys. So go figure. Um, but anyway. Um, now, Devi, when people refer to the Devi, like with a capital D, um, they're referring to a triple manifestation of a goddess, normally um, honored at Navaratri, which is a festival, a nine-day festival um, that takes place in, uh, usually around October um, is when Navaratri happens. The date, you know, will depend probably on certain um, 
astronomical factors and maybe astrological too. But it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, but the, it's a, it's, um, the Devi is actually a triple goddess and the goddess is Adurga, Lakshmi and Sarasvati. Okay. Um, Durga, of course, is the fierce aspect. She's only shown with her, you know, you know her trident and her sword, um, riding on the back of a lion or a, a tiger. Uh, Lakshmi is, um, is the goddess of true wealth. Okay. And when I say true wealth, I mean, she, she represents prosperity and material abundance, but Lakshmi also is, uh, represents with true wealth. And of course there are riches that go beyond, uh, material things. So she, she's a representation of all of that kind of wealth. And then there's Sarasvati, um, or Sarasvati, depending on how you want to say that. Uh, she's kind of a muse goddess because she's associated with music, poetry, uh, writing, inspiration, creativity. Uh, so Sarasvati is, um, you know, so she's she's this. She's often pictured holding a, a vina, which is a kind of a stringed instrument in her in her hands when she is uh, pictured. Okay, so we we have these three goddesses, and actually. Um, these matrikas uh, that appear, these um, these these fierce um, matrika means mother. Okay, but these matrikas that appear are actually considered to be manifestations of Mahasarasvati. Okay, and then some of them are um, the Navdurgs. Obviously, are, are manifestations of Durga, um, specifically during the Devi Mahatmayam during these battles, which um, which the festival kind of recounts. Now, um, okay, so. That's that's sort of the central story there. Um, I'm just going to mention the. Um, that's odd that I did that there. Um, the uh, the idea of the Shri Chakra, as I mentioned, um, uh, Sri Vidya is sort of uh, falls into the school one of the schools of Tantra, and uh, there are, as I mentioned, nine interlocking triangles surrounding a Bindu, forty forming forty three smaller triangles. And there are nine chakras or circles. Chakra literally means like circle, by the way. It's that's or wheel. It's it's a it's considered to be something that spins. When we talk about the chakras in the body, or the, um, what you're talking about are the sort of um, let me see how are there. There's the um, there's the muladhara. There's the svadhisthana. There's the um, manipura. There's the anahata. Uh, there's vishuddhi, um, um, uh, atnya, and uh, 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 so the, um, the I'm trying to remember the rest of it. It's basically the thousand petaled lotus. Um, I don't know why the word's not coming to me. I pretty much recite these every single day, but it's, but in any case, that's the top one. So we're talking about seven chakras that are often, um, discussed or used in any kind of system when you're talking about Kundalini or when you're talking about, um, certain kinds of meditation, when you meditate on the chakras, uh, generally, those are the the ones. But however, um, as anyone, uh, there are many, many chakras in the body. Those are just considered to be kind of the main, you know, along the central spinal system, that those are supposed to be the main wheels that um, of these sort of consciousnesses. And, and again, there's been a lot that's written about what those chakras are associated with mentally, physically, emotionally. And, you know, some of it might be good stuff, some of it might be bunk, but, you know, it's it's important to know that there's a lot that's written about it, some accurate, some inaccurate, but that is actually what the system is. It's this kind of system that runs along the um, the spinal column. Okay, and um, the worship of the Shri Chakra. Um, one of the main um, prayers spoken there is known as the Shri Devi Kadgamala Stotra. Um, I might play. I, I think I have a recording. I can get a recording of a little bit of that to play when I do actually, because I am going to do a separate episode on the Shri Chakra, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here. 
but uh, extremely powerful mantra and usually supposed to be recited with certain mudras, um, which are hand gestures uh, that, you know, uh, that are um, that are performed along with certain uh, points in that particular prayer, because it does go through um, the nine chakras and uh, uh, to the to the central bindu. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to get into the to that. But that is another very powerful um and by the way, Kadgamala means basically um, a mala, which is like a necklace, like or a rosary uh, of sorts. Okay, so you you can see that a lot of this deals with the um, the very intense um, manifestations of Shakti, which are both fierce, you know, because they they they're both creative and destructive. They in in the way that they sort of emanate. Um, or they, they are connected perhaps to Shiva in some way, and you know and that there's like the creative slash destructive element uh, in those. But uh, so anyway, we will, we'll talk about that in a separate podcast. Um, now, let me talk a little bit about the Hindu forms of prayer. Um, most people on an individual level might meditate with a mala. Okay, a mala is basically, M-A-L-A, is basically a rosary. Um, it usually has... Um, uh, 108 beads on it. Um, some of them might have more or less depending. I've seen them with just maybe half of that, like 54. And there's usually, um, smaller beads and one larger bead at the bottom. That one, when you're, when your finger, you know, the idea is you have your eyes closed and you're, you're going through the beads. And then when you hit that larger bead, like, you know, what milestone you're at. Um, and the malas are usually made from, at least in India, they're usually made from what they call rujaksha, rujaksha seeds. And rudrakshas are, um, what you call it? Um, they're basically like they're, they're they are these little like brown seeds that are kind of mottled or, or look, looking. They have like a rough texture to them. And these these are the traditional malas. If you have one of these malas, by the way, you're not supposed to wear it unless you're actually a renunciate, uh, or you wear. Or if you are going to wear it, you wear it under your clothes. You don't like wear it as like a piece of decorative jewelry. Okay, it's um, it's not meant to be you know displayed to people. It's kind of meant to be a private thing because generally the idea is that you are reciting your mantra. Okay. Um, now the mantra. Um, now again, in that kind of assumption, there's the idea that one has a guru or spiritual teacher who has given you a mantra based on, you know, what your own maybe beliefs are, what your chosen deity is. I'm going to talk a bit about chosen deities in a little bit. Um, but you have these these mantras that are recited. And usually um, the, the mantras that the guru will give you are versions of what they call bijas or seed mantras, okay? Um, the most common uh, bija mantra that we know of is om, okay? Om is, and actually... Most mantras that are recited in that way start with the word Om or start with the seed mantra Om. But there are many other um, bijas. There's, you know, I'm Shreem, Kleem, Hreem, Hom, Kleem, you know, Cream. You know, there's, there's, there's these different sounds, okay? And they're put together in a particular combination. So it's usually like, you know, you'll see like Om, I'm Hreem, Shreem, Namaha or something like that. Namaha meaning like I bow to you, Okay. And so you might have a, a, a string of uh, seed mantras that starts with Om and ends with Namaha in that fashion. Um, or it can end with other words, too. Um, for example, the one for Chandi, I think, is Om Aim Shrim Shrim um, Chamundaye Viche. Okay. So they can, they can be used in combinations with others. Um, now, the Gayatri Mantra. Okay. You'll hear a lot about Gayatri Mantras. And these are generally longer mantras. Um, let me see if I have... Um, 
have, I know I have an example of one here um, that I haven't, I just don't, I don't want to, I could do, I used to do them off the top of my head, but I just don't want to um, screw it up. Um, where is it? Uh, that's Ganesha. We don't want Ganesha yet, right? Not yet. Um, I've sort of not not quite prepared for this one, but um, okay, yeah, here we go. So, for example, for the goddess Kali, um, there is a uh, there is a Gayatri that goes. Ombul Bhuvasvaha Tatsavitur Varanyam Bargo Deva Shadimahi Dyoyona Prachodayatu. And um that is a um you know, and I think if, if actually anybody who's who's a who's a Thelemite or who practices uh, Thelema will also be familiar with that particular um Gayatri because I think Crowley recommends that you uh you recite it at the site of the full moon. Um and that is a um, so that is an example of a Gayatri. Now, why is it called? Now, Gayatri is the name of a of a goddess who is associated with being a, one of the consorts of Brahma, uh, the creator god, um, and she's often associated with the sun and with light. Um, but Gayatri, when we refer to a Gayatri mantra, you're referring to the number of syllables, and I want to say that there are thirty syllables in a Gayatri mantra. It's either twenty eight or thirty, but anyway, they they all have the same number of syllables, and they all usually start with that Om, you know, bu, bu, you know, whatever it is, and then it ends with the Prato Dayata. It, it, they all are, they all kind of follow that um, pattern or formula. Um, <clears throat> trying to remember, I'm trying to remember the Dorga one because I remember hearing that one, um, but I can't remember the the middle part. But there's usually a Vidmahe Om, you know, whatever Vidmahe, and then there's the name like for example with Dorga, it's Kanya Kumari Di Mahi. And then it's Tano Durge Prachodayata. So it's, you know, there's, they, they follow a particular formula and they're always the same number of syllables. So those are, are two of the main kind of mantras. Um, the, alter, the other way that, um, now when it comes to the names of the gods, the names of the gods are often recited um, as a type of a prayer. Um, and this is usually what we call in a stotra, okay, or stotram. And stotram can be in, in two forms. There's the ones for japa. Now, japa is the practice of using your rosary and count, you know, saying the names or saying your mantra and counting off. And that in those cases, it's usually 108 names that are recited. And they're recited in a form called usually a namavali um, or namahavali, if you want to say it that way. And usually that's um, a form where you are, you say Om, and then, you know, a form of the name, and then, you know, Namaha or Namo Namaha. Again, the I bow to you, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I bow to you, you know, goddess or God who is called whatever, okay? Uh, then there's the, also the Sahasranama Stotra, which are the thousand names of whatever deity you're talking about. And those are generally recited. Uh, they usually you begin, you, you, you begin a Stotra um, recitation, with uh, what they call a dhyanam sloka, which is kind of like a little verse that's like a visualization, like we meditate on the goddess who, you know, has this form and has this and that, and, you know, we, we bow respectfully and ask for, you know, it's kind of like a little introductory piece. I mean, that's how it would translate into English anyway. So you would have that. Um, so you you generally could do that, and then you have either the uh, the stotram or the namavali. Um, so just to give you a little idea of the difference between the two, um, I'm just going to look at one that I have um, uh, here. Um, just trying to find uh, find a very good uh, find a good section here. Um, 
Yeah, that's the Namavali. So if I have a section, for example, I'm in the, looking at the Lalita Sahasranama, the Sri Lalita Devi being the, uh, the goddess who is the queen of the three worlds. There's a section that says, uh, Atma Vidya, Maha Vidya, Shri Vidya, Kama Sevita. That's, so if I was doing a stotra, that's exactly how I uh, would recite it. Um, in a Namavali, I would say, Om Atma Vidyaye Namaha. You know, um, you know, Om Mahavidye Namaha, Om Shri Vidyaye Namaha. I would ba- break it down that way rather than just reciting the name straight out. Okay, so that's kind of a um, you know that that's kind of a, a generic overview of how uh, what the prayers tend to be like. Now that doesn't there are other forms of prayers too, um, but generally they are they are describing the attributes of the God, or they were saying you know you know oh you who has this attribute and this attribute you know help me in this and help me in that you know. That kind of a thing. Um, now, the actual worship that's performed is usually known as puja, okay? And a puja can be simple or elaborate. It all depends. Is this a puja you're doing in your own house? Or is this a puja that you go to the temple and you're participating in some kind of a, a larger ceremony? Because pujas go on all day at Hindu temples. And uh, generally, those larger pujas, you come in, there's a, there's a priest or um, <clears throat> a brahmachari who will, you know, who is, you know, running the, um, who, you know, he was the, who is the one performing the ritual. And, uh, you know, and, and they may, and generally, if you come for a puja, usually you bring an offering, you bring, you know, like fruit or, or, or something, you know, there's some kind of an offering that you bring to the god. And the priest will come up and ask you things, um, ask you your name ask you, you know, what family you're from and cast. If you're Indian, if you're not Indian, they just ask you your name usually. And then they'll say, they say, oh, okay. And then they, they take whatever. And then they, um, you know, you, and then you, um, you know, you might, uh, then they, you typically with the deity, they will watch, you know, they will wash the morti or the image. You know, they use different things. You use honey, you use ghee, which is, which is a clarified butter, uh, rose water. Um, there might, they make an offering of rice, um, fruits, other things, um, I'm trying to think of what all of them are. There's there's a, there's quite a list of them, and there's a standard list of these kinds of libations or offerings that are made to the god. And uh, at the end of the ritual, usually what they call an arati is performed. Okay, an arati is like a lighting, usually of camphor. Um, by the way, be really careful if you if you use camphor in your house. Um, a lot of like my um, when I used to go to my guru's programs, they would sell like really tiny pieces of camphor. But if you buy the temple stuff, it's massive and it's like, you know, <laughs> set your fa- house on fire massive. So um, just just be careful if you decide to use um, very, uh, you know, if you have camphor, use it in tiny little pieces if you're using it at home. Okay. But you basically put it on a, um, there's like a little um, metal, you know, disc kind of thing with a with a handle that you put it on and then you would light that up, you know, that, or sometimes people just use a candle and you basically are, um, spin the flame sort of clockwise in front of the deity and you recite, um, whatever the, whatever the prescribed oddity is. And, uh, usually that's preceded by the blowing of a conch shell. And then there's, uh, you know, and the oddity, sometimes oddity is done by two people or two people will hold it one side each of a, of a tray with the lit camphor or the candle and they'll spin it in front of the deity. And they, um, and there's generally a um, a recitation called an arati that, um, and again, it depends on the deity. Um, 
and I see, I think I seem to remember that there was one with uh, what was it for uh, Shani Puja? Shani being um, the planet Saturn. Um, those are the, called the Grahas, and there's there's also Pujas for those as well to try to um, mediate difficult forces in your chart. And I seem to remember how to go. It was like Jay Shani Dev, Jay Shani Dev, Sahasra Pranam, and then it kind of went on here, Ravinandra. That was the that was the Arati, and that went on. And then um, sometimes the Arati uh, for the goddesses comes from. The Chandi Put, things like um, Yadevi Sarvabhute Su Brahmi Rupena Samstita, Namasta Se, Namasta Se, Namasta Se, Namonamaha. You'll hear these often. These are from the, these are definitely in the Chandi Put. This is when they're the gods are in trouble. They're invoking the Devi to help them, and it's you know that goddess who is you know the embodiment of whatever the word is. Um, that one was Brahmi, which is the the she's sort of the Shakti of um, of Brahma. But also, you might say, you know, Dayaru Pina Samstata, who is the embodiment of compassion. We continually bow to you. So there will be that might sometimes that is also used uh, as an oddity. So, um, you know, again, it depends. And if somebody's just doing a small puja at home, a lot of times they'll just um, they have a shrine somewhere in the house. And they'll go, they'll make a little offering of some kind of food or rice or something. And then say, you know, say a mantra a few times and, you know, just just show respect to the deity that is in the home. Um, and then, of course, if you are participating in a puja, um, you will usually receive prasad at the end. Prasad is a little gift, like, you know, you might get a little thing of rice or, you know, whatever it is that they have there. Sometimes it's a sweet, something like that, uh, that, that puja participants are given at the end of puja. So, um, you know, it's, and that's, that's, that's generally kind of the formula. I mean, it can vary. Now, the difference between also doing puja in the home and doing puja in a temple is that the um, the uh, puja that you would do in a temple, <clears throat> um, the, the murti or the image, M-U-R-T-H-I is usually how it's transliterated. It can be, there could be a slight um, difference there. Um, but I just want to uh, see if I can find it listed in here. There's a, because um, I'm looking, actually, I have the Kali puja. I do this, um, Quite, quite often, actually, years ago, I, I spent a lot of time doing this. But um, <clears throat> at this point, I don't, um, you know, I haven't, I, I've kind of moved away from it a little bit. I'm trying to move back into puja practice now, um, in, in general. But um, yeah, this is what I was looking for, the prana prastita, which is the establishment of life. There's a particular ritual that is done, and it should never, ever be done on any murti in your home unless you are planning to open and permanently maintain a temple, okay? Just FYI. Um, not a good idea to um, establish life in anything that is in your in your house. Like I said, just, just for your own private practice. <clears throat> the, the, the deity can be present enough without you having to do that. Um, I remember I have a Murti of Kali that I had gotten um, and I brought with me to one of my guru's programs. Um, and I'll talk about my guru a little bit at the end. And uh, and I remember it was very funny. There was a woman there who saw that I had that with me. You know, she was just talking about, oh, how wonderful it is, the Divine Mother and this. And she goes, oh, you brought Kali? Like, like, what, like what a scandal. And of course, she was a white woman. And I just looked at her. I went, yeah, okay. Uh, you, you really get what this is all about. Like, not, but whatever. It's fine. But... And, and in fact, my guru I know who is actually considered to be a manifestation of Kali um, has gotten really backed off from, from talking about that just because so many people just think Kali is just some horrible demon who's out to kill people because they're 
just I don't know. I don't understand how you can come to something like that and not not get that. But I but I also recognize that a lot of people just don't have the feminine in religion and they're just looking for a kindly mother figure. Which you know, Kali for all of her monstrous aspects, she she can be like that. You know, she has she has that she has a protective aspect to her. So, um, but anyway, I had brought the the murti to um, to Ama and she. Um, she blessed it, but but she would never. As if somebody said, "Well, she'll never do the you know the establishment of life." I said, "Well, she shouldn't." I mean, you know, why why would she do that? You know, that's that's not that's not what it's for. So I had my figure um, blessed by her, and I, I still have that in my uh, on my little altar at home. But um, so yeah, so when you when you go to a temple, you're actually the murti itself. Um, you know, we, a lot of times we talk about uh, iconography versus idolatry, the idea of the image as somehow containing the god. But in Hinduism, the image does contain the god, but it's not the same concept of god. That's another big difference. In the West, we tend to think of god as some kind of ultimate, omniscient, omnipotent, um, you know, you know, the whole all-seeing, all-knowing, you know, all-whatever, you know, kind of deity that's kind of the intelligent mover of everything. Um, the Hindus don't see the gods that way. Gods can actually, humans are actually in a better position to achieve liberation than the gods. Um, gods are, are qualities or forces of nature, and they're also forces of the mind. Kind of similar, actually, not, not, not dissimilar to ancient paganisms. That's what they are. These are they're these kind of ancient natural forces that um, one comes into relationship with. Um, magicians will tend to do that. People who do goetic practices and so forth, um, might do that here. Now, again, there's a big difference between the way um, somebody like the average Hindu, let's say, who's just, you know, dependent on, let's just say they're even a quote unquote, a higher caste Hindu. The Hindu caste system is um, is kind of classes of people that were, um, it really, it's designed for, you know, based on the idea of dharma, which is one sort of um, role or, you know, I hesitate to use the word destiny, but it's kind of like whatever your role is supposed to be in this world is your dharma. So whatever role you've been picked for, you are supposed to do your best to fulfill your dharma, okay? And the caste system, I think, is is based around this idea of dharma that each, you know, the, whatever group you're born into, that's the particular role you have in life. Which doesn't have to be, it, it, there's something very almost Confucian about it, you know, the idea of, you know, the family and, and who plays certain roles uh, and so forth. The problem with the caste system, like a lot with a lot of these kinds of um, rules and hierarchies and structures, is that then it ends up translating into a social system, which is um, usually, um, you know, very um, uh, discriminatory. Um, if we think about the plight of the untouchables, for instance, who belong to like the caste that, it, that like the outcast, literally, when we talk about someone being an outcast, that's that's where we get that term from. Where, and the way that I have seen higher caste people treat lower caste people, I mean, it's like, get away from me, you filthy pig kind of a thing. And I just kind of, you know, and, and they just take it because they just say, well, I'm the low caste, that's how it is. And I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, as a social system, I can't get behind that way of being. I mean, just, you know, it's a traditional practice. And I understand that there's a lot of people who buy into that still. And who may even want to offer their own justifications for why it should be that way, but I don't think there's any justification for it. Um, it also falls into um, problems, uh, and colonialism and British colonialism could be responsible for this because it seems to be epidemic all over the world that countries where you have darker skinned people tend to view lighter skinned people as somehow better or superior or more powerful. Um, 
uh, somebody had said to me once I had been, um, because I spent a lot of time doing things. Now, I happen to be divorced. So, um, and of course, uh, among Hindu women, a lot of times if you're divorced, that's, that's sort of scandalous. So, um, so they would, they would make comments about some of these divorced women, but it's the fact that I was divorced. It was like, oh yeah, well, you know, that happens sometimes, you know, it's okay. You know, it's like, you know, like they don't, they don't, it's treated differently. And someone said, yeah, they treat you differently because you're white. And, uh, my own guru actually, um, you know, now she's never been, she's never been married, but she was, um, from a family, um, a, a South Indian family. And she was the darkest child. She was born, her skin, they said, was actually almost blue-black when she was born. She, she had really dark skin. And uh, therefore, the family thought that she, you know, well, they weren't going to send her to college or educate her, you know, because she was just this black thing. So she was just going to be the servant for the house. So you know what I mean? It, it, yeah, there's this, um, sadly, there's this definite attitude, even among, you know, other people who that kind of treat lighter-skinned people as somehow, um, you know, possessing more intelligence or, or being more suitable and that, you know, somehow uh, darker skinned people are, are lesser or, you know, to be kicked around or persecuted. And, uh, and I have a real problem with that. Um, I don't care. I don't care if you want to give it the name of tradition. That to me is not um, that that kind of tends to be uh, problematic. It does happen in human societies. That doesn't make it right. Um, but I think of like the ancient Greeks when they had, they had their, they did different, different classes, obviously, um, in Rome, certainly, or ancient Greece and Rome, you had like the patricians and the plebeians, and then you had your slaves and, you know, and even in Greece, there was kind of, they didn't have the, uh, the democratic structures quite well, I guess they did, but not, it wasn't quite the same as, um, the Roman Senate. Nonetheless, you had your elite classes and then you had your, uh, your, your slaves and you had foreigners. Okay. Um, and, interest, and it was the rituals of Dionysus or Bacchus that where the lower castes and the lower people, the slaves and the foreigners, became the leaders. Okay, and that was that was allowed in culture. It was the idea of a subverting of the order. Um, but of course, as as the time went on, the state wanted to control the subverting of that order, um, so that these people who had a lower social station uh, get get raised up in the religion. So similarly, in Hinduism, there is the idea of tantra. Okay. Now, okay, so we need, we want a definition of Tantra. What is Tantra? Because people don't know what Tantra is. People think of Tantra as just having to do with maybe sex or, you know, some kind of ritualized magical sex. Sex can be part of Tantra, but that's not actually what it is. Um, there's a wonderful book uh, that's just came out from Theon Press called Ferocious. They're the same ones that produced the volume uh, Underworld, and it's the same group, this, uh, the Sepulchre uh, Society. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why I have a heart. I always stumble over that word when I see it. Um, but they have produced a work uh, called uh, Ferocious, which is about the, uh, the uh, Matrikas, okay, the Ferocious Mothers, which we will be talking about. And in their book on page 21, I have the hardcover edition, um, not, the, not the super special hardcover edition, <laughs> just the regular one. Um, they, they give a definition of Tantra from Professor Constantina Rhodes, and I'll read it here. Tantric sadhana, or spiritual practice, is a continuing process of enlivening and strengthening the awareness of the goddess's presence within. The worshiper recognizes a correlation between the goddess's influence in external affairs and the establishment of awakened divine consciousness within his or her own being. Okay. Um, and they go on to say, Rhodes' definition is short but to the point. Effectively, in the practice of Tantra, an adept worships a deity with the intent to eventually embody the favor and power of that deity for both material gain and spiritual liberation. Partly magic, partly worship, and a great deal of meditation. Okay? Now, 
Another big difference with Tantra is Tantra, we talk about the difference between what's pure and what's polluted, okay? And um, in, in, in traditional, like Brahmin-level Hindu practice, purity is extremely important, um, just kind of like with Jewish practice. It's like there's certain dietary restrictions, uh, there's certain rituals that have to be performed before you can do certain things. There's a whole lot of purification that goes on. Uh, such purification isn't particularly necessary in Tantra, because Tantra is also about the polluted. Some of the goddesses there are goddesses specifically of pollution, of, um, you know, um, hanging out with the outcasts, of eating, you know, castaway food or eating meat or doing certain things. It's not um, it's not about being um, prissy and pure. And I, I know that's not necessarily a, a nice way to couch the idea. I mean, purity has its uses in certain places, certainly purifications. But um, there can be an overemphasis on purification to the point that, um, and that's another thing that this um, this book talks about, is they talk about um, whether or not one has to be initiated by a guru or by a Sri Vidya Tantric or whatever to be able to practice Tantra. And their basic conclusion is no. And I'll, when I talk about my own experiences, I, I agree with them and I will explain why. Okay, so... Um, so now that we've kind of gotten the basics down of Hinduism and we've defined Tantra, Tantra is kind of an equalizing, um, religion. Um, now most people I know, again, who practice sort of traditional Hinduism, if you talk anything about Tantra, you just watch them, watch them cringe. They feel, you know, there's a, there's a vibe there that you should stay, it's dangerous, you should stay away from that. Well, maybe some people need to stay away from Tantra, maybe it's not, um, it's kind of the whole idea about freedom. You know, it's like, not you know, we, we talk about wanting to be free, but not everybody wants to be free. And, uh, you know, we really can't, when, when we're given freedom, we, we, we want someone to tell us what to do. We want some level of control. We want to know the step-by-step -step right way to do something. And uh, a little bit like people who are interested in chaos magic. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a chaotic element to it. But tantric practice has a lot to do with... Um, is very similar to goetic practice or people who would, um, might practice um, some forms of necromancy or other things in the Western traditions. Uh, it's, it's the matter of establishing a relationship with a particular force. And in the case of the Matrikas and of some of these others, they are not necessarily nice forces, okay? Um, the way it's described in the Matrika book is they say, yeah, it's kind of like the, the monster that's look eyeballing you is devouring you for food, you know, and... and and what's interesting is the way that they say the adept will manage to um, work with that kind of a deity is to continually, they say you kind of have to view a tantric deity as either your mother, your sister, or your consort. So when the, mother, when the, the devotee continually approaches and calls the mother and makes an offering, it's that at first they might laugh at them and say you're stupid, and then they might be bewildered, and then they'll reject the offering, and then eventually they'll take the offering and they'll tell the initiate what they want to know. Okay, so you can build a relationship with the Matrikas. Like other goddesses, too, there sometimes is a probably a karmic connection. So in other words, if you're drawn to that kind of worship and you're not necessarily born into that kind of a situation, you may have been in that kind of situation in a previous life. Assuming you believe in that. Perhaps some people listening to this are skeptical of that idea. Well, whichever. Um, certainly, if you are in a system that believes in reincarnation, it is entirely possible that you have lived through that stuff before. So, okay. Um, so before I get into my story, I want to quickly just give you some definitions of the sort of classes of uh, fierce or dark feminine uh, Hindu figures. 
First, I want to talk about the Mahavidyas. Now, not all the Mahavidyas are fierce. There's two in particular, uh, Kamala and Sodashi, who are very auspiciously viewed. Okay, They usually uh, talk about auspicious versus inauspicious. And a lot of times these particular dark mothers um, may have asked, may have both. They may have both auspicious and inauspicious um, uh, attributes. Okay, and they're off, those two are associated with youth in particular. So where do the Mahavidyas come from? Well, that goes back to Shiva and Parvati. Um, there's differing, I've, I've read different variants of this story, but the, the, the nutshell version is that Shiva and Parvati get into some kind of an argument. Either they're playing a game and she wins and he gets mad, or they fight about something and he decides he's going to leave her and he storms out. Whatever the, the, the base, basis of the argument is, you know, and that, that can vary. Um, Parvati stops him by, by immediately expanding herself in ten directions. Okay? And everywhere Shiva turns, he sees another manifestation of Parvati. And of course, later he also realizes that these manifestations are part of his own Shakti, okay? Which is part of the mystery. Uh, a lot of these goddesses are actually uh, the Shakti or the vital force of the gods. So Brahmi, for example, is the is the Shakti of uh, Brahma. Um and so on, well, so on and so forth. We'll get into that with the Matrikas. Um, but the ten manifestations of Shakti, also of Kali. Sometimes this is Kali rather than Parvati. And Kali is one of the manifestations. Okay. Um, now let me give you just a quick list of the, um, of the Mahavidyas. Um, let's see. Uh, have that right in f- <clears throat> I thought I had that right in front of me, but I don't. So, okay. So the, the Mahavidyas are Kali... Tara, Tripura Sundari or Sodashi, uh, Bhuvaneshwari, uh, Beravi, uh, Chinamasta, Dumavati, Bagalamuki, Matangi, and Kamala or Kamalatmika, sometimes she's referred to as. Okay? And so these are the different manifestations. Basically, they're, very, they're different manifestations of the divine feminine. And some of them, and, the, and they're also listed as the aspects of Adi Parashakti, which is another expression of, of that, um, and all forms of Parvati. So um, these, you know, and, and these these are um, definite. They are definitely. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm going to go over have an episode where I talk about each one individually, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it here. Um, in some schools of thought, they think they're all forms of Mahakali, Kali herself. Okay. Um, but all of them are, they're very complicated, um, and some of them have to do with, with these sort of darker, um, more deadly aspects. Uh, some of them are very strange, like Chinamasta, the, the um, deity who cuts her own head off and, you know, uses her blood to feed um, the Dakinis and, and herself while she stands on the bodies of two copulating uh, individuals. Um, you have, uh, you know, Dumavati, who is sort of the um, embodiment of the widow, you have uh, Matangi, who is the is the unclean one. Okay, sometimes called the Tantric Sarasvati, um, and she is, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> so she has, you know, but but she deals with all unclean things and unclean people. So just those are just a few examples. But we were going we are going to talk about the um, the Mahavidyas because they um, and and I think I one of the reasons I'm very attracted to them in particular is because you know just as we talked about the ancient Greek deities showing a lot of um, complexity in the ancient feminine I feel like these deities really somehow managed to capture it in a way that um, that we just can't seem to quite get it in the West 
So, uh, so that's something that I want to uh, want to talk about. Okay. Now the matrikas. Now it depends. Uh, there's either seven or eight, and they are manifestations of Mahasarasvati in the battle against Shumba and Nishumba uh, in um, the uh, Devi Mahatmayam. Okay. So they these you know and and. and I will. I'll probably read from that section when we get when we start talking about that particular uh, epic. But they are fierce warrior aspects of the divine mother, and again, not all of them are apparently bad. Like Indrani, who is the 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 Shakti. They're later on. They're con- construed as the wives or consorts of some of these other deities, but they're really their Shakti. They're their their vital force. And again, in a Shakta religion, the idea is that your vital force, that the, the thing that whether you're a man or a woman, that thing that makes you go is feminine. Okay, that divine force in you is feminine. So Brahma, um, yeah, Brahmi is, is the force that makes you uh, able to create. Okay. And uh, the Matrikas, let me see if I can give you there. Again, it, it varies. The names of them will um, vary depending on where, uh, like Nepal has a slightly different version of the Matrika. Some of them are the Sapta Matrikas or the Seven Matrikas. Um, in other versions, they are the, they are the Ashta Matrikas or the eight of them. So let's see if I can, um, okay. So the ones described in the Devi Mahatmaya are Brahmani or Brahmi, uh, Vaishnavi, Maheshvari, Indrani, Komari, uh, Va- <clears throat> Varahi, Varahi uh, Chamunda, and uh, Pratyangira, uh, who's also sometimes known as Narasimika. So uh, these are all, you know, and again, they're all considered to be manifestations of Vishnu, Shiva, or um, you know, or Brahma, they're they're the, the shaktis associated with those deities. Okay, and um, those the first six are unanimously first six are unanimously accepted. I'm just reading this off Wikipedia quickly. Um, the names and features of the seventh and eighth are disputed, and the Devi Mahatma Chamunda is omitted from the list, even though she is she does figure into that um, particular um, epic. Um, while in sculptures and shrines or caves and in the Mahabharata, uh, Narasimhi is, is omitted. Okay, um, the, the Varana Purna names Yami, the Shakti of Yama, as the seventh, and Yogishwari as the eighth. Okay, so there's, again, there's some, there's some variation there, but the first six are generally accepted. And, uh, again, we will talk about those in great detail. Now, the other ones that, um, uh, that I want to talk about briefly are the Navdurgas. Okay. Now who are the Navdurgas? Well, it's, um, the Navdurgas are, are, <clears throat> are basically manifestations of the goddess Durga. Um, <clears throat> sorry, again, I'm just bringing this up here or the Navadurga. Uh, they are, um, associated with, um, with Navaratri, again, there's the nine nine forms of Durga, um, and again, worship during Navaratri, and they do again refer to these ferocious aspects. And the names are um, that are associated with uh, the the, um, the the nine forms of Durga, who's also so associated with Gauri or Parvati, are Shelaputri, <clears throat> Brahmacharani, Chandraganta, Kushmanda, Skandamatta, Kalaratri, Katyayani. Uh, Mahagori and Siddhatri. <clears throat> Siddhatri. Siddhi is a kind of hard word to Siddhatri. Yeah, that's it. I'm um, just trying to make sure I'm saying them right. Um, so again, these are, uh, and these all represent different aspects of the goddess in the, the Devi Mahatmayam, which I, again, I, I don't want to, 
I don't want to get into the details now because I plan to discuss all of them separately. So, so these are these kind of, um, so this is kind of an overview of those sort of fierce feminine forces. Um, now, um, okay, so having kind of given this little introduction to what Tantra is, what Shakta is, and um, the, the kind of basic forms of prayer and worship that go on in, in Hinduism, and, uh, and a little bit about, you know, again, a little bit about Tantra as well, and what it really is. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about um, my own experience, but people would say, well, what makes you the person to, to talk about this? You know, um, what, 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 what kind of credentials do you have in this? Like, what's your initiation or what's this or what's that? Well, okay, first of all, I can say, as far as initiations go, I have a guru, uh, Mata Amritananda Mai, um, who is also known as Ama. People will know her as the Hugging Saint. And generally, she she kind of um, is shown as kind of being a very benign, motherly kind of a figure. And that that really is what her her dharma is. That's what she she's there to kind of provide this feminine comfort to people. And people come from all religions. I've been to her programs, and I see like you know Orthodox Jews there. I see nuns. I see um, you know uh, Buddhist priests. It's it's just unbelievable who goes there to receive her blessing because she is a very very special lady. And the more you know about her background, see, a lot of her background is not, I mean, you can, there, she does have, there is a biography available that one can read, and I don't want to get heavily into her biography. I did mention about her, how she was born and how she was treated growing up, but she manifested two things from a very young age. One was um, the Krishna Bhava, okay, so where she took on the mood and attitude of Sri Krishna, particularly during Krishna's festivals. And some people thought it was just, oh, well, she's a very pious girl, so, you know, Krishna has, has manifested through her. But, in fact, um, she manifested Krishna Bhava quite often when she was younger. And then she started manifesting Devi Bhava, okay, uh, which is, you know, taking on the attributes of the goddess. And the goddess she had really um, shown the attributes of early on was Kali. Uh, there's, a, there's a VHS tape out there that I don't think they sell anymore. I have it, called Vintage Scenes of Amma. And it's her, you know, she's got swords in her hands and her tongue is lolling out and she's just dancing in, in, in this, you know, this frenzied kind of um, circle. Um, and again, when, when you actually look up, you don't you don't see this image of her at all. And, um, you know, or they show images of her with a very benign looking Kali. Um, they even have uh, Amma dolls. I have one, actually, where she has the Kali outfit, complete with skulls, trident, and uh, and sword. I think my sword one, my sword's disappeared somewhere. I don't know where it went, but I still have her little trident. And um, and when, when she has her programs, she always ends the program. Uh, she has, like, a couple of days where people come, and she's in her white sari, and she hugs people. But the last program is called Devi Bhava, where she actually goes into a um, – it's, it's a ceremony where she actually – becomes the embodiment of the Devi. And sometimes you watch her, you watch her skin change color. She just sits there and uh, they, if people think she's doing makeup and things like that, I mean, they put the crown on her and they put a sari on her, but everything else just kind of happens and it just deepens as the night goes on. Um, <clears throat> and during Devi Bhava is when she will provide a, um, a mantra initiation usually. Uh, so if you, you know, tell them you want a mantra, you generally have to wait quite a bit of time. I remember I had to go to Michigan to get my mantra, but I got a mantra from her. And, um, you know, and then I was taught how to use it. And then she also, um, in my case, she also not not at the Devi Bhava, but she had given me a name as well. And that was a rather interesting um, 
experience because uh, the name she gave me is Nischala, uh, which has to do with stillness or, or sort of a lack of movement. And in, in my research, Nischala, the only place where Nischala appears in any kind of stotra is in the thousand, the, the, the Kali Sahasranama stotra. So Nischala is an aspect of Kali. And it's the opposite of chunchala, which has to do with restlessness or restless movement. Uh, Nischala has to do with perfect stillness or being in the perfect center. And I feel like there's sort of a message there in terms of, you know, hey, you function best when you're when you stop running around like, you know, a chicken with your head cut off and, and shut your mind off, um, because that that is actually how I function best. And it's not the way I'm functioning most of the time, just FYI. But um, but but she's pointing out that you know you need to you need to make sure you're you're reconnecting to your center. Um, but how I came about the name was funny too because normally what she does is she's doing the program and there's um, some people you know usually from the ashram who are standing behind her and they have a book in their hand of names. So if people get on the naming line and and she may cut the naming line off, she she just kind of knows she's like nope not taking anybody after that fifth person you know like she she has her own way of dealing with that. So I was on the naming line. There was a girl in front of me. And, um, <clears throat> you know, they wrote, you know, the, the person standing behind Amma wrote a name on a piece of paper. Amma looked at the girl, took the paper, put it to her forehead and handed it to the girl without another word. And then um, the people holding the book explained to them, oh, okay, this is the name and this is what it means, blah, blah. So, okay, it's my turn. I go up. They write a name down and they hand it to Amma. Amma looks at the name. She looks at me and she goes, no. She goes, no, no, no. I mean, she just went, no, and then she started talking very fast in Malayali. I don't speak Malayali, so I couldn't tell you what she said. But somebody who was standing nearby told me, because they were kind of watching it flabbergasted, they said, she's telling them, no, you have to pick a name with these qualities. And I don't know what the qualities were, but she was sort of counting off on her hand, and she'd look at me, and she would smile, and then she'd look back at them and go, and she was going through the list. And and they were practically ripping the book apart, writing names down, trying to find what she was doing. And they ended up handing her like five slips of paper. And she looked at them, and then she looked back at them, and she went, no. And then she finally, she kind of finally kind of patiently tries to explain what she's getting at. And then she goes, you know, da-da, nischala, nischala, nischala. And she points at me, and she smiles, and she grabs me by the chin, and she says, nischala. And uh, so the man writes the name down for him, and he goes, nischala, oh, you know, um, not moving, you know, whatever. And he goes on this whole thing, he says, ah, so mother says you are like God. And I'm, you know, laughing and I said, no, my mother's probably saying I'm just a stubborn fuck who doesn't move. Um, but, you know, but but again, as I as I mentioned before, I think the message there is just, you know, um, you know, engage in engage in more stillness, because when you shut up and listen to yourself, you 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 listen more and you do more of the right thing than when you um, when your mind tries to get get itself all over it. So that's kind of my, um, in terms of any kind of initiation or, or guru involvement. Um, does uh, Amma do Sri Vidya and things like that? My understanding is that, yes, she does. That's not what she presents to most people, uh, you know, the average person in the world. But um, there's definitely a tantric inflection to Amma, even though she is not, she would not ever be, um, she would never like brand herself as, as being tantric. But I just know from certain things that I've seen and I've read that there's there's this kind of it's more of a secret internal kind of a thing, but it doesn't necessarily go on on the out. You know, it's not it's not part of what she's presenting to the world. Okay, and that's not part of what she would claim her mission to be. Okay, so okay, so that's so that's that's sort of that part of it. Now the other part of it is the idea uh, in Hinduism of the Ishta Devata, which I'm going to talk about. I'm just going to read something from Esther Harding's work on Kali about the Ishta Devata, just like real quick sentence. Um, she's talking about the cult of Kali, 
And she says there must be, she says, it is not easy to establish an intimate personal relationship with such an intangible spiritual being. And whenever someone is successful, it is mostly based on the worshiper's own psychic makeup. There must be some similarity between the adorer and the adored. For instance, a worshiper of Kali has some attributes of Kali in him or her, and likewise a worshiper of Shiva has Shiva's attributes. Otherwise, he or she would not be attracted to that particular deity. This is the rationale behind the concept of Ishta Devata, or chosen deity. The god one loves most naturally and without being told to do so. Okay? Um, now, many people I know will choose a deity like Hanuman, for instance, as their Ishta Devata. He's a monkey god, um, appears in the uh, Ramayana, uh, as a, is very loyal and devoted to Krishna. Um, and I've known a lot of people who have had Hanuman as an, an Ishta Devata in particular. Um, if I tell people, if I tell Hindu people that my Ishta Devata is Kali, I mean, you immediately just watch the eyes widen. And even the Bengalis, okay, because uh, Kali is the chief goddess of the Bengal, Bengals. They're kind of like, why? Like, why, why would you do that? And um, my question, my thing would be sort of like, okay, well, I don't know if it's a karmic connection, but I've always really been, for some reason, that has always been extremely natural to me. As soon as I discovered that goddess, I'm like, yes, of course. And when I, we talk about the goddesses, the, the Matrika book I'm talking about mentions this as well. Even though we talk a lot about archetypes and Jungian theory and things like that, never ever, if, you, if you're interested in these deities and you practice anything like this, don't ever view these deities as being um, just merely archetypes. Now, the archetypes are not mere, M-E-R-E. They're just, they're not. Um, but since most people understand them in a very abstract way, we tend to think of them in a very abstract way, like, oh, yeah, there's something in the unconscious, and they don't really have anything to do with me, even though they influence everything that you do. Um, but nonetheless, to, to try to think of them in those kinds of detached terms would be a mistake, because they are, there's always the question about whether or not what you're experiencing is the real, real deal. Is this the real God? I mean, is this really a being? you're dealing with or is this a, a psychological you know like is it an archetype or, or some kind of psychological manifestation probably to some degree it's both but with when you're dealing with entities like the matrikas or these kinds of dark particularly these dark female figures when you're dealing with someone like kali you don't treat them as if they're some kind of abstract arch, you know abstraction or something that's out there they are very much here and they let you know um, I have had when I was doing at one point I was doing Kali Puja three times a week. This was shortly after I divorced my husband. I was in my uh, the K two phase of my Vedic chart, if you know what that is. And um, so I'm sitting. I remember I would sit here, and then I could hear like feet, like with anklets stomping around down in my you know downstairs. You know, I would um, and I kind of wake up and I was like, huh? You know, it was just it was weird. Or I would be walking through. I, think I might have mentioned this ep episode before walking through New York City and then hearing like somebody yelling out to me like, hey, hey, you know, and, you know, would call me daughter, actually. It's like, come over here. Come over here. You know, why, why don't you come see me? And then I'd go in the direction of where I perceived the voice coming from. And it would be a Kali temple. So it was just, you know, it, weird stuff like that. And they, they're very, they get very personal with you if you are involved with them and they talk to you and, um, <clears throat> and they're not always delicate about how they talk to you. Sometimes it's like, you know, they grab you, but it's like grabbing you by the shoulders and going, Hey, you know, shaking you kind of a thing. And I think other people in other, um, 
traditions from other cultures, you know, uh, voodoo or South American practice and other things, they'll, they'll report very similar experiences with these kinds of female entities. And they're not frightening. Some people, you talk about it and they go, oh, that would scare me. And I'm like, well, it, it, it's not scary to me at all. To me, it's like, it's completely anticipated. And it's completely the kind of relationship I want to have with this. I want to know that this deity is there. And boy, do they let you know that they're there. And for some reason, I have never had the experience where like, I feel like I'm food for these people, which is kind of as mentioned. I've never had that experience. I always feel like it's almost like, hey, we've always known each other, which is why I wonder if there's a karmic connection. I can't swear that there is. Um, but it does seem kind of likely given how easily I've slipped into this. Um, another example of how that was, was um, there's a, a particular... Um, we talked about, you know, uh, Namavali, we've talked about the 108 names, we've talked about, you know, Sahasranama, Stotra, where there's a thousand names. There's also a particular verse, verses called Trishati, which are only, which are 300 names. And there was sort of 300, um, 300 names of Durga, okay, these 300, um, this, this one particular Durga prayer. And I was told, I remember when I first heard it, they said, no, you can never recite the Trishati unless you have the permission of your guru. It's, it's too, it's too powerful. You can't, you just can't do it unless your guru says it's okay. Well, I had learned, I had heard the Trishati. I had heard recordings of the Trishati and I, I wanted to recite it. I, I had a, a, a desire to. And uh, so it was really strange because one night I had a dream of my guru and it was like she and I were walking and talking about something. I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was like I was about she was going to leave me. And I said, oh, wait, I said, mother, I said, um, you know, I, I need to ask you. I said, um, I, I would like to recite the Trishati. Can I have your permission? And she looked at me and she says, what do you need my permission for? And I said to her, well, you know, it said that, you know, you have to ask the teacher. And she goes, oh, yes, ask the teacher. She said, uh, the gods can be strange in their heaven sometimes, can't they? And that was it. Um, it was a really strange dream, but it, it seemed to have a real weighty significance. And I'll just let you know, I have recited a Trishati since then to no negative effect. Um, so I do feel like um, if you are drawn to these kinds of things, uh, you may be being pulled in by something like that, by some kind of a karma, but you can forge a relationship with these deities. And boy, it is extremely personal and sometimes extremely physical and visceral even without like establishing life in a murti. Um, another example, um, I had a friend uh, who uh, I, I don't I don't want to give too much details because this is somebody who I've I've mentioned before, so I don't want to talk about them, you know, um, you know, on a podcast. But th let's just say I had a friend who um, I, I was supposed to do something with on a particular day, and I remember that night. All of a sudden, I hear a loud crash in my closet, and when I open the door, for no reason whatsoever. All of my Kali Puja, like, you know, things that I have, not the metal things, not anything that's breakable, had fallen off of their shelf and just landed on the floor. And this person was somebody who was very interested in dark mothers, not necessarily Kali particularly, but was interested in dark mothers. And they called the next day and they told me about something, you know, they had to cancel what they were doing because something very terrible and unexpected had happened. And it was weird because right around the time that they were, they were emailing me was the time that this happened. So it was almost like, yeah, sending a message like, hey, pfft, you know, and, and, and the messages are very loud, direct slap in the face, you know, right in front of you. So I have a lot of experience with this. I'm not bothered by it. I don't feel like um, I feel like I need to take it seriously, but I'm not like scared by it. OK, and um, 
So for me, a lot of, you know, I, I think I feel like sometimes when I tell people to engage with these things, I have to do it a little bit with a grain of salt because for some people it may be too much. For me, it's obviously not. So, uh, so that's, that's kind of the experiential side for me, um, without getting, you know, going, going too far off the rails. Um, and this is kind of why this is a very important topic to me and one which I'm going to probably try to address. There's going to be a lot of, um, you know, not only addressing the sort of the history in the background, but also some sort of personal insight, as this is probably where I have the most experience with um, doing ritual and with having encountered these deities. So with that, I'm, I'm sure I have been, I'm not even sure how long this is running. I don't have a, I don't have a time thing on this when I'm working with this, uh, the equipment that I have. Um, if I don't keep track of when I started, uh, I tend to kind of keep going. So uh, with that, I think I'm going to stop for now. And like I said, the next two episodes will also be introductions to this material. And then we are going to get into the individual goddesses after that. Um, thank you very much for listening. Um, please check out, um, I'm going to be revamping Cthonia.net over the next month or two. It should be almost an entirely new website and how it is. It should be much better organized, easier to use. And when I link out on social media, I'm going to start linking directly from there rather than metapsychosis. Not that I don't want metapsychosis people to go there or not to not go to metapsychosis, but I'm really, my Cthonia side is really suffering because the Cthonia.net, because people go to the other place first. So I want to, but right now I kind of feel like it's a little more cumbersome to go to Cthonia.net the way it's organized. So I would like to to fix that. Um, I should be offering some, like I said, offering more things this year. Um, you might be happy to know, or or maybe not, I don't know, depending on how often you've listened. Um, I have one of my novellas, it's actually a novella right now uh, called Maeve, M-E-D-B. Um, and it's... Uh, and it's one of the things listed on Cthonia.net. Uh, I actually finished that. I'm working on the artwork for it. And um, so that <clears throat> that is a project that probably um, I'm hoping by the end of this month that we're going to start hearing more about it. I might even have a Kickstarter to try because it's going to need special printing. It's not going to be – I guess I could come up with a version that you could print in a regular book. But there's so much like artistic pieces to it that I need to – I probably need to at least do some additions um, from a more formal printer who can who can work with that. So there might be a Kickstarter coming out for that. Um, and uh, again, um, so I have a Patreon. Like I said, if you want to uh, promote, uh, help my work, um, I don't, you know, it's, it's it generally it's a very small modicum of money right now, but I'm extremely appreciative of the people who continue to support me. And I would be very happy if others would, would, would want to support me on, um, you know, on uh, patreon.com slash Cthonia. And also, you know, check me out on um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I have pages everywhere. Facebook tends to be where I'm the most active, but um, but I do also have um, pages in the other places. So, uh, and I would love to hear from you. Um, so, like I said, please give me your comments and feedback. Uh, and uh, with that, I'm going to say um, thank you very much until the next episode. And um, I'll we'll continue this conversation then.